Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 66, An Epilogue. Hello and welcome everyone once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. In our previous episode, Vilcabamba fell to the Spanish after nearly 40 years of resistance, both by force and diplomatic skill. But Viceroy Toledo, determined to oust the Inca, got his way and had Tupac Amaru, the last Sapa Inca of Vilcabamba, executed. That was our final episode of the narrative, while this is our final episode of the podcast. Within it, I hope to tie up some loose ends as best as I can and close with some of my personal thoughts. Enjoy. We're going to begin with the fate of some of the gold and silver that were extorted from the Inca. Much of the gold was used by the Spanish to fund its wars against the Ottoman Turks. Meanwhile, the silver mined in Potosi and elsewhere was traded all over the globe as the Spanish Empire continued to expand. Few relics survived the furnaces, and those that did are in museums or in private collections, perhaps in the hands of the Spanish monarch, or even that of the Vatican. One relic that may have had such a fate is that of Puncheo, the sun idol, which contained the hearts of the dead Sapa Incas. The idol was sent to King Philip II by Toledo, who encouraged the king to send it to the Pope, since it had the power of the devil exercised through it. We don't know if King Philip II ever sent the object onward to Rome. To this day, it could be in storage in some Spanish palace or perhaps in the vast facilities of Vatican City. Let's get to the fate of a few Spaniards, starting with Vincent Valverde. If you don't remember Valverde, he was the one who first confronted Atahualpa in the square of Cajamarca and presented him with a book, likely a Bible. When the Sapa Inca threw it to the ground, the friar went back to Pizarro, dismayed at how the Inca had treated the word of God. Well, Valverde's fate fell just outside of our narrative at the time, but he had remained close to Pizarro until the governor's death. The friar was quite depressed about his friend's demise, as well as his own brother's capture by Diego Almagro's Chilenos. Sensing that his own safety might be at risk, Valverde snuck out of Lima on a ship and sailed north, intending to find Cristobal Vaca de Castro. Instead, the ship landed on the island of Puno. If you recall, the inhabitants of Puno didn't really enjoy the Spanish's first stay upon the island, and they sure weren't thrilled to see them return, because they killed Valverde 
along with 17 others. One man who may have been wishing for such a death may have been Francisco de Toledo. He was already advanced in years when he first arrived in Peru, but in his final years as viceroy, he was downright ancient. And his last years in the position were not easy, with subordinates criticizing his laws and actually encouraging disobedience. Toledo wrote to the king several times, actually asking to be relieved of his post. His wish was finally granted, and Toledo was permitted to step down in 1581. We've discussed Toledo's track record as a colonial administrator already on this podcast, and he was very good at his job. There is no doubt that Toledo took the position and improved the colony for the benefit of Spain and the Spanish crown, and he expected to be rewarded for what he had accomplished. Oh man, was he wrong. I wish I was there for the moment when King Philip II scolded Toledo and told him that he was sent to Peru to serve kings and not kill them. Toledo was placed under house arrest and all of his goods had an embargo placed on them. He was still under investigation and pleading his case when he died in 1584. One person we left long ago was Hernando Pizarro. If you remember, after getting revenge on his captor, Almagro, Hernando returned to Spain, but was imprisoned for his actions against his adversary. Well, one day, the old conquistador had a visitor, his niece, Francisca Pizarro, daughter of Francisco Pizarro, and Ines Huelas Yupanqui. And what did they do? They got married. Yep. Was it love? Who can say? When Hernando was finally released, the two of them set about pressing his claims in Peru and cataloging his holdings. This included precious objects, 44 estates in Spain, the encomiendas he was given in South America, in the silver mine in Porco. It was quite an extensive list, and for Francisca, a portion of her indigenous heritage. They eventually received part of what they asked for. Francisca went on to promote the construction of the Palacio de la Conquista in Trujillo, Spain, where you can see a statue of her and her husband. Their grandson would push for the title of Marquis, which was awarded to Hernando 85 years prior. Thus, the title of Marques de la Conquista was bestowed upon him. The title would pass in and out of Francisca's line of succession until the 18th century. Let us go to Atahualpa's line. It might surprise you to know that the Inca did have a son. This son would never attempt to don the fringe himself and lead a rebellion, but he would become an accolade or mayor of the natives of Cusco. 
The mayor would have a granddaughter, but the line of Atahualpa would end with her. Now for the son of Paulu, Carlos Inca. I mentioned it briefly in our previous episode that the Kalkampata was confiscated from Carlos by the godfather of his son, Francisco de Toledo. Apparently, Carlos was accused of corresponding with Vilcabamba and was arrested along with having all of his property seized. However, this turned out to be yet another example of how Toledo sought to stamp out as much as he could of the Inca aristocracy. King Philip II actually reversed the sentences on Carlos Inca and the other Inca nobles who were caught up in the charges. The Inca married a Spanish woman and had one son, Melchor Carlos. Melchor would push for claims and titles, but would be exiled to Spain for being involved in a possible rebellion plot with his father-in-law. While on the peninsula, Melchor would live outside of his means, dying in debt, but succeeding in seeing Spain, something both his father and grandfather had longed to see. He would have a legitimate son who would continue to press claims, who would continue to press for claims and compensation, but who would die young and without an heir. Beatriz Clara Coya, daughter of Seri Tupac Inca, who had come down from Vilcabamba, inherited all of her father's holdings. Unfortunately, As a young girl, Beatriz was raped by a Spanish nobleman who essentially kidnapped her, hoping to marry her and thus have the former estates of Sari Tupac for himself. That did not happen, but the man that Beatriz did marry was none other than Martin Garcia de Loyola, the man who captured Tupac Amaru in the Amazon jungle. Now, we didn't get into Loyola's character much in the previous episode, but just to give you an idea of the man, he petitioned to get Tupac Amaru's head added to his coat of arms. However, the Council of the Indies was more sensible and denied the captain his grotesque request. Loyola himself went on to be governor and captain general of Chile, making Beatriz quite important as well. Her husband went on to fight the Araucanians in the southern reaches of the territory and was killed. Loyola's head was then used for decades as a drinking vessel by the group. Beatriz Clara Coya died on March 21st, 1600, at just the age of 42. However, she and Loyola did have a daughter, Ana Maria Lorenza Garcia Sari Tupac de Loyola. Ana would spend some time in Spain, where she lived in the highest circles of the Spanish court. There, she met and married Juan Enrique de Borja y Almanza, who, as you can probably guess from the name, came from a rich and powerful family. 
It wasn't long that several estates, which had been confiscated by, you guessed it, Toledo, were returned to her. But that wasn't all. Anna also petitioned for 40 years of lost revenue from the crown, which she was granted. In summary, she received a pension of 10,000 ducats, a semi-autonomous fief at her estates in the Yucay Valley, and the title of Marquesa de Santiago de Oropesa. With the title to her estates in hand, she and Juan sailed to Peru in 1615, where Juan's cousin had just been named Viceroy. The native population was so happy to see the great-granddaughter of Manco Inca return to the land, and the couple lived in a large residence in UK for several years. In 1627, though, Juan was given a promotion in Madrid, and the couple left Peru for good. Sadly, Anna would die on December 7, 1630, at only 36 years of age. She was buried in the Church of San Juan. The church no longer stands, but one can see its foundation in the Plaza de Ramalas in Madrid. Her husband, Juan, would follow her only four years later. The title of Marquis would pass down for several generations until the fourth Marquis, Pascual, Anna's great-grandchild, died without an heir. The title went to his sister, Maria, but she would also die just two years later in 1741. If we were to compare the descendants of Seri Tupac, who relinquished the fringe, to that of Titu Kuziupanki, we would see a stark contrast of fates. Titu's son, Kispe Titu, was never allowed to return to Cusco after being exiled. And while his father was promised several estates through the Treaty of Acobamba, they were never officially received by the Inca. Quispe Titu never appealed his case that we know of, though with Toledo in power, it is unlikely much would have come of it. After six years in Lima, the son of Titu Kuziupanqui died poor. But before he departed, he acknowledged that he was about to have a child. Unfortunately, nothing is known about his baby's fate. The descendants of Tupac Amaru received Spanish educations, and several of them became Caracas, working for the Spanish. His most famous descendant was actually a Caraca for some time, and was Tupac Amaru's great-great-great-grandson. His name? José Gabriel Condorcanqui Tupac Amaru, also known as Tupac Amaru the second. Many of you who know Peruvian history will recognize that name as Tupac Amaru II raised arguably the most famous indigenous rebellion in Spanish South America. I won't go into detail here as this is very much a part of colonial history, 
but Tupac Amaru II sought to oust the Spanish and reestablish indigenous rule, using his blood to claim the mantle of Sapa Inca. Eventually, Tupac Amaru was betrayed by a descendant of Paulu and was executed in the Plaza de Armas in Cusco, known to us as the Huacapata. Though Tupac Amaru II's rebellion failed, indigenous unrest and revolt continued for years to come. Finally, I must mention the fate of the royal mummies. We'll start with Atahualpa. As we discussed, Ramanawi is said to have whisked the body of Atahualpa north to Quito, not long after the latter's execution by Pizarro. After that, not much is known. However, Ecuadorian historian Tamara Estupinanin believes that Atahualpa was buried at the site of Maiki Mache, which in Quechua means mummy burial. Such a find would be huge for Ecuador, especially as many in the country consider Atahualpa as one of their own. After a campaign by Estupinanin for funding to excavate the site, work began in 2013. However, all that was accomplished was the restoration of some of the structures at the site. The fate of Atahualpa's body continues to be a mystery. To further discuss the fate of several of the Inca mummies, we must bring up Polo de Andegardo. This figure had a minor role in our narrative, but astute listeners will remember that he served as corregidor of Cusco for a time. Though he worked to negotiate a deal to lure the Inca out of Vilcabamba, he is perhaps best known for his work as a mummy hunter. Andegardo is responsible for finding or determining the locations of most of the royal mummies. Quoting the translation of Alvaro Ruiz de Navamuel, Some of them were embalmed and as fresh as when they died. Four of them were Wanakapak and Amaro Topa Inca and Pachacuti Inca Yupanqui and the mother of Wanakapak, who was called Mama Oklo. The other ones he found enclosed in some copper boxes. These he secretly buried. From the account above, we know that Andegardo buried the mummies in secret to avoid them being dug up and venerated by the Inca. Their location to us is unknown to this day, and they could quite literally be anywhere. Our only hope at ever identifying them, if they are found, is if they were buried within those copper boxes and that they hold some clues for identification. Also, you no doubt recognize several of the names of some of the most famous Inca that we've discussed on the show. Pachacuti and Wanakapak need no introduction. Mama Oklo, arguably the most important woman in all of Inca history, being the daughter of Pachacuti, primary koya of Tupac Inca Yupanqui, and mother of Wanakapak. And then we have Amaru 
Topa Inca, the older brother of Tupac Inca Yupanqui, who was passed over as Sapa Inca, but nevertheless played a crucial role in mentoring his younger brother and administering the empire. Based on accounts, we know that the mummies were likely sent to the hospital of San Andreas in Lima and put on display. In 1590, one account describes the mummies as having begun to decay, which is not a surprise given the warmer and wetter climate of Lima. Our last eyewitness account reports of the mummies being there in 1638, still on display. But after that, who knows? San Andreas ceased being a hospital long ago, but 80% of the original building still exists, though the city has grown around it. There have been several excavations over the centuries in an attempt to find the four Inca mummies. The first, in 1876, opened up a crypt, but yielded no evidence of mummies. In 1937, a limited search of the hospital grounds was executed, but did not find anything. The most recent search in 2001 by Brian Bauer and colleagues used ground-penetrating radar, but gave no conclusive results. Leading scholars suspect that the mummies were buried somewhere on the grounds. And so, for now, the resting place of some of the most powerful Inca is not high in the Andes, but on the coast of Peru. I want to close this episode and this podcast with some of my thoughts on the Inca and some related topics. First, we'll start with the Inca. The Inca are but a snapshot of civilization in the Andes. If we take a look at their entire history, from Manco Capac to Tupac Amaru, the Inca were around for about 400 or 500 years, maybe. And not much is known about the early Inca. Our origin myth episodes covered the first eight Inca as we know them. And that was only two episodes. It really isn't until Pachacuti Inca Yupanqui comes to power that we have more detail and have a greater understanding of when reigns of certain Sapa Inca began and ended. The Inca do represent the culmination of Andean civilization prior to the Spanish arriving on Peru's shores. Many aspects of their civilization were around before they came to power, such as roads, mita labor, warfare, religion, and more. Yet the Inca were able to take what was there and improve upon it, making it work for them and their empire. All that said, Tuatinsuyu was not some idyllic utopia. No such thing exists in any former civilization. Yet that hasn't stopped people from looking back into the past and viewing the Inca as a rallying point for a more perfect society. 
There were countless rebellions and civil wars during the time of the Inca. Mainly due to our lack of clarity on the subject, we may never fully understand the extent of these quarrels. Encircling back to Meatmax and the displacement of groups, one cannot claim the Inca were a utopia with all of that taking place. Are they something that one could look back to as a point of pride? Certainly, but they were not perfect. No society is. I want to explore this idea that I don't think is really explained or communicated well enough in our collective history. The case that, for the initial part of Spanish colonization, that there were actually two Spains, the Spanish crown and the Spanish conquistadors. The more I read, the more I realized that these two Spains wanted different things. The Spanish crown wanted to spread religion, but also wanted resources and territory. Meanwhile, the conquistadors wanted conquest and, as we know, gold. The crown didn't necessarily want regime change. They would have been happy with native groups and cultures submitting to their rule, becoming vassals, and providing tribute. Regime change was messy and would entail installation of new leaders or possibly new political structures. It tended to mean the loss of life and the loss of resources. However, that clashed with what the conquistadors wanted, conquest and power. Now, one could argue that the Spanish crown wanted power as well, but really they already possessed it. Did they want to expand or increase their power? Of course. But the conquistadors, Cortes, Balboa, Almagro, and the Pizarro brothers, all wanted to have power where they had very little before. This situation of two Spains existed since the beginning of exploration of the Americas. Poor communication and the delays of correspondence with the peninsula enabled this, as the Atlantic Ocean was a major barrier. The distance and lack of a strong peninsula presence in the Americas allowed the conquistadors to spin their own narrative on things, as they reported to the crown. We saw an example of this as Francisco Pizarro made his case for governor of Peru, leaving his partner Almagro on the sideline back in America. I don't know if this dynamic between the Spanish crown and conquistadors has been explored in detail too much, but I do believe it has not been explained well to the average person. I hope I was able to do my part in at least introducing it to you. Onto the all-important Treaty of Acobamba. Oh, what could have been if Titu Kuziyupanki had lived a while longer, or if Tupac Amaru's captains were not so aggressive. It was the opportunity for the Inca to be a part of the Spanish Empire 
and perhaps would have provided them with a future as an independent state. Of course, we don't know for sure if that would have happened, but it is fun to think about. But who violated the treaty? Did the Inca? The murder of an ambassador was extremely unfortunate, but it was not ordered by Tupac Amaru and was the result of insubordinate or undisciplined captains. The situation could have been handled diplomatically with the perpetrators properly punished. Things may have played out this way if there was a less authoritative viceroy in office at the time. Did Viceroy Toledo violate the treaty? From Spain's end, it seems like the Treaty of Acobamba was finalized, and all that was needed was the Sapa Inca's signature. So was the treaty technically even complete? It sure seems like Toledo didn't think so, as he tossed the treaty away as soon as word of Adelano de Anaya's death reached his ears. However, the Inca had agreed to the initial version of the treaty, which had been sent to Spain. So it is clear that the viceroy did not act in good faith and chose not to allow negotiations to continue. He instead invaded after the original version had been approved by both sides. When we look at the Spanish crown's point of view, it certainly seems like the Treaty of Acobamba was a done deal. If King Philip II and the Spanish court had been aware of the ambassador's unfortunate demise, it is unlikely that they would have taken the extreme measures that Toledo took. Again, the crown did not want regime change. And as we can see, based on the king's reaction once Toledo returned, a different decision would have been made. It is therefore my opinion that it was not the Spanish crown that violated the Treaty of Acobamba, but Viceroy Toledo, who acted on his own judgment quite similar to those captains under Tupac Amaru who killed Anaya. Finally, everyone, this is a history of the Inca. If you look through that long bibliography on the website and read several of those accounts, you may notice details that vary based on what one reads. Garcilaso de la Vega, for example, was once considered the source for a long time when it came to the Inca. However, now that it has been discovered that his mother was from Tupac Inca Yupanqui's Panaca, De La Vega's account is now considered quite biased. And let us consider that new texts are still being uncovered and translated. I mean, one of Cieza de Leon's accounts was only just discovered in the Vatican's possession several decades ago. Then we have archaeology, the tried and true practice of understanding the past and civilization through science, reasoning, and playing in the dirt. But the thing about archaeology is that it is quite a slow process, and the Andes are vast. There is still a lot to uncover.
Perhaps the next bit of information will come from Kipus. If they are ever fully understood, I can only imagine the wealth of information and knowledge that they will bring. With all this talk of artificial intelligence, maybe we can apply that to analyzing the Kipus we have recovered to reveal some hidden meaning. And of course, just because the title of the previous episode was Death of the Inca, does not mean that the Inca are gone. As I explained earlier in this episode, descendants of the Inca continued on for many centuries, and even to this day. I want to point your attention, dear listener, to a book by Ronald Elward Hagsma called Los Incos Republicos, or The Republican Incas. Hagsma managed to uncover what happened to descendants in the last years of colonial rule and the first several decades of Peruvian independence. In doing so, he interviewed 35 families who can trace their ancestry back to the Inca, some holding elected local office today. The book, only published in 2020, does not have an English version at this point. But if it ever does, you can bet I'll be taking a look at it. But the Inca live on not only from their descendants, but from their way of life. They live on thanks to the Capacnan and Keswachaca, the reed bridge constructed every year over the Apurimac River. Their work lives on in the ashlar masonry of the Cori Concha. And their predecessors, such as the Moche and Tiwanaku in Huaque de Luna and the Sungate on the shores of Lake Titicaca. Even the Uros continue to live on that sacred lake to this day. The memory of the Inca is kept by those who preserve it in the form of tourism, eager to share it with those who seek it, which I encourage you all to do. Visit where the air is thin and the sun intense, where the mummies of the Sapa Inca and their koyas were venerated, and where the final Sapa Inca breathed his last breath. Lastly, the Inca live on through the accounts and stories told about them, which now includes this podcast. Thank you all once again. I have been your host, Nick Mashinsky, and you have been listening to A History of the Inca.